So he, so he got up and sternly rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. He didn't say, Oh God, please save us. Oh God, make the wind stop. Make the wind stop. Oh, save us. Oh, please, please. Oh. Nope. He said, Hush, be still. Another translation says, Peace, be still. Few words, big power. The words are words of authority. Amen. you got to understand that when you have a... Sometimes I have a hard time with the word pray. Because there's so many different parts of praying. And I think people need to understand that. It can get confusing. I think that many people, like a religious way is to put praying all in one box. Meaning like everything's always just asking God something. Like, God, I pray that you will do this. I pray that you will do this. Will you do this? I pray that you will do this. And it's just all like lumped into one thing. And it gets confusing sometimes, I think, when we say I pray. But then there's this other part where we're taking authority. Right? So many people say, have you prayed about it? Have you, have you prayed about this? Have you prayed about this? And I think a lot of Christians in the religious way are being like, oh, God, can you please do this? And will this? And I don't know what I should do about this. And when really the answer is really clear, like... There's wind going on, and you need to execute your authority and say, peace be still. Amen. Like, you don't need to go to God about it. God wants to use your brain. Like, that's what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't like, okay, God, um, what should I do in this situation? Like, do you want to, like, test their faith a little more? Like, should, or should we, should we wait it out and just, like, go through the rough season? Just trust that you'll get us through? Like, what are you trying to do right now, God? What are you trying to do? No, no, no. Like, God gives him this this mind, and you, he knows the word of God. We have, to know, we have to know the word of God. We have to know the difference between right and wrong. We have to know Amen. what God's will is. Amen. And so then we can quickly go, peace be still. Yes. We can quickly execute our authority. We can quickly say darkness leave. Amen. You see? The birthright that you have now, you are the DNA of Jesus Christ. You have his blood flowing through your blood, and you have all authority of heaven and earth has been given to you because you are now following Christ. Your eternity is set. You're, I'm telling you, the best days are going to be ahead of us. They're going to be glorious. There'll be no more fear. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. I mean, we are made for heaven. We're going to the place that we were made for. So he, he doesn't look at the enemy and say, I'm loved. You are so loved. Your love is a weapon everywhere you walk, everywhere you go, every environment you walk into. I'm telling you, you are warfare because of who you are. You don't have to pick on the enemy. Enemies like they are, if they only knew who they were in me, they would have so much authority. They, they, I'm scared to death of them. And then he doesn't say, well, here's my prophetic words and my encounters. See, I just seen the church too much. We try to use our encounters as a weapon against the enemy. I think that the, the encounters we have are vital and powerful, and I want them in our lives, and I, I want us to honor them and record them and write them down and remember them. But that's to benefit us. But when it comes to your enemy, don't waste your breath. You tell the enemy the word of God. You shut him down, and you stop using your strength and your energy to fight battles that were meant to be done with. The conversation is over. I'm not having this with you again. I'm not wondering if I'm worthy. I'm not wondering if I'm anointed. I'm not wondering if my kids are gonna serve God. I'm not wondering if I'm gonna stay married. I'm not wondering, the conversation is over. You can say it again to me. You can try it again, come on. I dare you. Hang out with me a little bit, devil. Hang out with me, I'll show you.
Listen, the Bible says when you take authority, if the enemy hangs out with you too long, he'll come under your authority. He will flee. When you resist the enemy, you hold the power to get him to flee. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to wonder, what do I do? Don't even give life to that. You are the most powerful person in the room. It's still only God and humans who have power and authority. So what level of power and authority do you have? How much do you have? See, Matthew 28, 18 says, Jesus came to them and gave them all authority in heaven and earth. So you have all power and all authority. And if you've got all of it, it means somebody else has none of it. Okay, tell your neighbor, you have power and authority. Everything that you're seeing happening right now is because I already took authority through the blood of Jesus Christ in the spiritual realm. Destroying blockage, hindrance, delay. There's literally people, witches, that take over regions. They astral project. And the regions that don't have Christians praying against it, the regions that don't have Christians praying against the blockage, hindrance, delay of your ministry, your ministry is going to crumble if you don't take authority over that in the spiritual realm. You know, I lose, I please salvation over all of New Mexico. I please salvation over my school, over my workplace. Every devil, every unclean spirit, you have no power. I bind you, serve you an eviction notice right now in the name of Jesus Christ. Confuse the demons' languages, confuse their tongues, make them fight against one another. I pour the Holy Spirit fire over my situation. I plead the blood of Jesus over every witchcraft, any witchcraft, any spell, incantation with my name on it. I boil it in the blood of Jesus Christ. Spiritual warfare, that's what's moving everything. The believer who is thoroughly conscious of the divine power behind him and of his own authority can face the enemy without fear or without hesitancy. The value of authority depends upon the force behind the user. Jesus said, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now, is he literally talking about snakes, scorpions? No, no, no. He's just using them as a type. Because notice he said, I give you power or authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. See, he's talking about devils, demons, and evil spirits. I give you authority. God himself is the force behind the authority. In 1967, Kenneth Hagin published a book called Authority of the Believer. It was a small pamphlet size book, which I have one of the printings here in my possession, uh, consisted of about 31 pages. And in it, he talked about the authority of the believer as far as exercising their authority, the rebel holders of authority, and uh, the prayers of Paul, and focusing on the book of Ephesians, and helping others to understand what their authority was. Now, if you're familiar with Kenneth Hagin, you're going to know that he is recognized as the father of the Word of Faith movement. Now, this episode is not going to go into the scope of the uh, metaphysical and the history of Kenneth Hagin with E.W. Kenyon and other things like that. I would encourage you, if you're interested, that there are other resources you can look into that and to delve into that further. What I did want to talk about today was this particular book, Authority of the Believer. I want to talk about the scope of it, of what it talked about. I also want to touch on the plagiarism issue, because there are some people that are not aware, as I was not aware for a long time, that the first 20, 21 printings of this book 
do not match the one that was republished and revised in 1984 after it was found that a good chunk of this book was in fact plagiarized from another book written with the same title in 1932 by a man named John A. McMillan, and his pamphlet was titled The Authority of the Believer. Kenneth Hagin got a lot of his beliefs from that particular pamphlet about the authority of the believer, and he put it in print. Years later, when it was discovered that he had plagiarized quite a bit of it, the book was revised, it was added to, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I'm not going to focus as much on that as I am the actual teachings in that book, what I was taught in the, quote, Bible college that I was part of because I took a class titled The Authority of the Believer, which had as its textbook, Kenneth Hagin's book. I'm also going to touch on some of the scriptures that are used, not all of them, obviously, but some of them that are used, as you just heard, in some of the other clips by other people, such as Catherine Crick, who espouses to be an apostle. You heard from Havilla Cunningham, who referenced the authority of the believer. You also heard from um, Emma Stark, who espouses to be a prophet, and she talked about the authority of the believer. And you also heard from a young man that he goes by King David Mapalo on Instagram, and he is talking about the spiritual warfare which Hagen touched on that as well in that book, as well as in the class that I took. And he also talked about the authority of the believer. What authority do we have as a believer? That is the question that we uh, should be asking, and probably many of you have asked coming out of the Word of Faith movement, or if you're still asking and considering my family members believe such things, I used to strongly hold <laughs> to some of these beliefs and teachings. But what does Scripture actually say about our authority? And the, the Scriptures that are used in order to validate our authority as a believer, are they really telling us that we have this authority? Let's talk about that today as we delve into the topic of the authority of the believer. Hi there, and welcome to the Love Sick Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Sick Scribe. Well, I have been wanting to cover this topic for quite some time. And the reason being because I have such a personal vested interest in in my former past as far as this teaching, having these uh, notes that I had from the Bible college that I attended and having the book in my possession, as well as having the book by Kenneth Hagin, the 20th printing of it from 19, originally from 1967. And then uh, this 20th printing was 1983. This was uh, right before the newly revised printing was done after it was found that a good chunk of this book had been plagiarized. I also have in my possession the original writing from John A. McMillan about the authority of the believer. And I also have a 1986 copy of The Believer's Authority. Now, you'll notice that the, the title changed. And I want to talk about that here in just a minute because it's not the same title. When it originally came out, and many people may not be aware of this that really enjoy this book, it was not originally titled The Believer's Authority. It was titled The Authority of the Believer, the same exact title that John A. McMillan had given his pamphlet that he released in 1932. 
I have a couple other books in this stack of this topic today that I'm not going to get into in depth, but one of them is one that I came across shortly after I came out of the New Apostolic Reformation Word of Faith movement. And this is an older book that was written in the 80s, and and it was titled A Different Gospel by D.R. McConnell, A Historical and Biblical Analysis of the Modern Faith Movement. Now, there is another book as well I want to put in here that it's probably more updated by a different uh, author named Robert Bowman Jr., and it's called The Word Faith Controversy, Understanding the Health and Wealth Gospel. I would encourage you, if you can get your hands on these books, that these are really good resources to look at and to learn from. Um, Obviously, the D.R. McConnell book was written years ago, and so there is more updated information, I would say, in The Word Faith Controversy and some different perspectives on that to take into consideration. But at any rate, I wanted to share this with regards to the Macmillan book that is in the book A Different Gospel by D.R. McConnell. On page 69 of this book, he uh, notices this about the John A. McMillan book. He says, for instance, and this is him referring to the fact that uh, Kenneth Hagin actually plagiarized quite a bit writings, not only from John A. McMillan, but there were significant findings that he plagiarized quite a bit from E.W. Kenyon. But with John A. McMillan, uh, McConnell notes in this book that Dale Simmons, uh, then a graduate student at Oral Roberts University, discovered in 1983 that as much as 75% of one of Hagen's best-selling pamphlets, The Authority of the Believer, which was first published in 1967 and had gone through 21 printings, was taken word for word from a series of articles published in 1932 by John A. McMillan under the same title, The Authority of the Believer. These articles were published in the Alliance Weekly, a publication of the Christian and Mission Alliance Church, and were later republished in pamphlet form. When Simmons realized that Hagen had plagiarized McMillan's work, he immediately contacted H. Robert Cowles, vice president of the publishing branch of the CMA Christian Publications. Mr. Cowles in turn wrote Kenneth Hagen and confronted him with the plagiarism. In his response to Cowles on February 28, 1984, Hagen claimed that his book, The Authority of the Believer, was taken from sermons he had preached on the subject. In these sermons, Hagen claims, quote, I gave credit to the fact that my teaching was based in part on the book by J.A. McMillan. This fact was evidently omitted in error when the book was edited. Hagen further claims that an unidentified article in the Pentecostal Evangel had prompted his study on the words power and authority, and that this study and its findings were done before my, my having read Mr. McMillan's book. McConnell goes on to note this in his book. The evidence against Hagen's claim that he did his study before reading McMillan's work would seem to suggest otherwise. First, Macmillan wrote his articles in 1932, a year before Kenneth Hagin was saved in 1933, 16 years before Hagin admits to reading Macmillan in 1948, and 35 years before Hagin published his first edition of The Authority of the Believer in 1967. Second, as Simmons points out in his analysis, Hagin's dependency upon Macmillan is extensive and massive. In the content of Authority of the Believer, Hagin's plagiarism of Macmillan is word for word, and where it is not word for word, it is thought for thought. And I can validate that because I have read both John McMillan's book and the original one of The Authority of the Believer by Kenneth Hagin. So I can attest to that and, and have proof that that indeed was plagiarism that was done. McConnell goes on to say in his letter to Cowles, Hagin offered the following explanation for amazing similarity between his writing and that of McMillan. He said, quote, I have found through the years that when individuals are speaking on the same subject, they will say virtually the same thing. This is because it is the same spirit that is leading and directing. He will show you things in the same ways 
and you'll have the same thoughts, although you may never have met or read after the other person. McConnell goes on to say the reader will note that this is virtually the same explanation that Hagen offered when confronted with the word-for-word similarities between his and Kenyon's works. It is a perfect example of the way that Hagen denies that his theology has any historical roots. And he says he admits to studying Macmillan, but he claims that he did so after his own personal study. He further claims that the plagiarisms with which he was confronted were not plagiarisms at all, but indeed were supernatural vindication of the fact that he received his theology from the same Holy Spirit who had inspired Macmillan's writings 35 years before. Hagen re-edited The Authority of the Believer in 1984, publishing the new edition under the title The Believer's Authority. As McConnell notes in this book, he says even a superficial reading of the new edition reveals that besides a change of wording here and there, the only thing different from the previous edition is the title. Now, I will say that there are a lot more um, personal experiences that are added. There were some in the original version, 1967, but there are more um, personal experiences that are added to the, the updated, edited version. And Hagen did include in the Believer's Authority a foreword in which he pays lip service to the fact that he read Macmillan's work. But as in his letter to the the publishing house, it is obvious that he still maintains that the book represents his teaching given by the Holy Spirit and not somebody else's. Now, as you know from listening to the clips that I played at the very beginning, obviously the Word of Faith teaching uh, with the facet of the authority of the believer, it's very much alive and well today in in areas of the charismatic movement. And with that, I wanted to share another example to you that I came across recently, just play one or two clips from it to highlight a few things and get you thinking. Um, Again, I use these examples to get you thinking about going back to scripture, back to the proper context, but just so you can hear that, yes, this is very much still um, going on today, that they're the women that I talked about at the beginning, and then um, the young man who I don't know, but he's an influencer, it seems like, on Instagram, that it's affecting even the younger people in this generation, um, is, is my point. This is not something that just it died and went away with Kenneth Hagen, or if it's in the older crowd, such as Kenneth Copeland, there's an article I'll briefly touch on that's on Kenneth Copeland's website that has to do with the authority of the believer. I'm going to touch on some notes from Bible college. I'm going to cover a lot of ground here and and um, and we're going to go back to the Word of God. But I want you to listen to Vlad Savchuk, one of the, the um, uh, self-professing demon slayers. He had a, a sermon that he did two years ago on the authority of the believer. I want you just to hear a couple of things that he said that I thought were interesting and give you some food for thought as always, and then we'll get back to Kenneth Hagin. But this just kind of helps you to see this is indeed, it's, it's infiltrated many different areas in the charismatic movement. I want you to notice in verse, in verse 3, he said, go your way. So as you walk in your obedience, he says, I send you as lambs among wolves. Not a lambs among a wolf. Wolves. Plural. Now, and this at first will seem like people who walk in obedience to Christ. I want to correct a traditional thinking that is not scriptural. That when you walk in authority, you are a lamb and the devil is the wolf. That is not what this means. Because Jesus says it later that you are a lion and devil is a snake. Uh, I drew a blank and I even looked at my Strong's Concordance because I could not recall anywhere where Jesus called believers lions. So if you find that, please let me know. Um, I know that there are references to the lion and the serpent in in the book of Psalms. Uh, It's in the Old Testament. I know that. But... um, 
it's not something that Jesus actually said in the New Testament. We are sheep. Those that belong to Christ are sheep. So this whole thing that we're lions, that's not true. There's only one lion, and that's Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. In the spiritual world, you are not a lamb. You're a lion. But in the natural world, when you walk, when you and I walk in obedience to Christ, we are the lambs. Not the devil is the wolf. Who is the wolf? The government, society, your family. People pretty much, they will come against you. Religious institution. So religious institution, the government, the society, and our family become the wolves. Why? Because when they criticize, it hurts. Who attacked Jesus? It wasn't the demons. It was the religious institution. It was the government. It was even his own family and it was the society. Every time you walk in authority, Satan falls again. He falls again, not only in your life, but in your territory. Because demons are territorial demons. They like their territories. That's why when the legion said to Jesus, we're okay with leaving the man, but don't let us out of this country. That's why a prince of Persia, a demon came to Daniel. He tried to resist Daniel. And the, the angel that came to Daniel and said, I fought with the prince of Persia. He wasn't fighting a man. One simple angel could slay thousands in a split second. But the archangel was fighting a spiritual principality. That's why Paul says that we fight principalities and powers. When you walk as a babe, as a lamb, as a nameless maybe Christian in your authority, Satan's influence in the realm of the spirit in your family, in your city, in your region, in your county begins to be diminished because you walk in authority. Can somebody say amen? Bring Jesus joy by walking in authority. The Bible says Jesus was exuberantly joyful. See God is a is a joyful God according first Timothy chapter 1 verse 11. God rejoices in his works according to Psalm 104 31. God also rejoices when person gets saved. We know that in gospel of Luke chapter 15. God rejoices over Jerusalem but there is one thing that gives Jesus joy and that is when he sees babes battle. When he sees lambs walk in authority. When he sees the 70 walk in their assignment and they begin to cast out devils. They begin to command and begin to decree and declare. For those of you coming to our church maybe for the first time or the first few times and you're like, man, why did they spend time um, speaking to the situation? Speaking to the sickness like it's a real thing. Because see, authority declares. Authority speaks. Authority doesn't beg. Authority doesn't plead. The police officer doesn't say, please, I beg you, I implore you. By the name of the police. Department of Pasco, could you roll down your window and then just uh, give me a license if you want to. If you don't want to, I understand. License and registration. There is authority. Come on, somebody. Now, somebody's been a police officer. <laughs> yeah, there is an authority, and he doesn't beg, he tells. He tells it the way it is. Now he's a human authority. You are a spiritual authority. That's why you will not understand these prayers that we pray until you understand the authority you have. He says, if you have faith, you will speak to the mountain, not ask the mountain, not plead with the mountain, not bargain with the mountain, not make deals with the devil, but you will command. Why? Because authority changes your voice tone. It changes your attitude. It changes your approach. You become a lion and the devil becomes a snake. Not the other way around. You're not a little sheep and the devil is a wolf. You're not a lamb and the devil is a lion. 
you are a lion and the devil is a snake. He's biting the dust and you are trampling over him. Somebody give God some praise. Somebody give God some praise. Hallelujah. And Vlad just used one of the passages, one of the many passages that are used by Word of Faith teachers to talk about your faith and your your authority in Christ. He even used the analogy of the police officer. I mean, Kenneth Hagin uses that his uses that in his book of the believer's authority about using the police officer, which he got from John A. McMillan <laughs> from his book in 1932 about a police officer having authority. And I remember being taught that in the believer's authority or the authority of the believer. I wanted to share those clips with you because, again, it seems like when you look at this, and I even was looking back on my notes and there were things in there that I did not remember writing down and it really upset me when I found them. At the same time, I thought, you know, this is part of the Word of Faith teaching, but I had just not even realized it's been so long. It was in 2007 that I wrote those notes down. This was actually taught to us. Uh, I'll get to that in just a moment um, about the authority of the believer and what we were taught as far as Jesus. But I wanted to uh, switch gears now that you've heard some clips, and we're going to dive right into the 1986 edition that I have here of the Believer's Authority. And again, he has word for word sometimes, or even thought for thought, uh, still of John A. McMillan's, and he's added a lot of his own personal accounts in here. But there are some things he says in here, such as on page six of this book, uh, the chapter one of prayers for Paul, he makes a, a note of saying that there is no sin problem. Jesus settled that there's just a sinner problem. Um, get the sinner to Jesus and cure, and that cures the problem. Yes, that's a little different from what people have been taught, but it's what the Bible says. The, again, there's a lot of stuff as I'm going through here that I, I noted. Some of the accounts were very interesting that he did not recall them in the second edition, the same way he did in the first edition. It was almost like there were there were details added to several accounts uh, in this book, in the second edition. But he talked about Christ's authority in chapter 3, being seated with Christ, that Christ's authority has to be perpetuated through his body, which is on the earth. Referring back to Ephesians, having the illustration of us being the body of Christ, and I would encourage you to, to uh, seek out uh, good Bible teachers as far as getting some um, expository understanding of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians in those areas. And I did make a note here on page 19 of the Believer's Authority. He made a statement that if the church ever gets the revelation that we are the body of Christ, we'll rise up and do the works of Christ. And he says, until now, we've been doing them only limitedly. In the first edition, he actually said, if the church would get the revelation that we are Christ. And again, he he made that statement in there several times uh, on page 20 of the second, this, the late, the newer edition. He says the believer is called Christ, um, the unbeliever Belial. He says we are as Christ. All things have been put under our feet, referring to 1 Corinthians 6, 17. And again, I think it's really important that whenever you see verses that are mentioned, you need to go look at the context because there's things being said about our authority that are ascribed to Jesus and Jesus alone. And we must understand what authority means as a believer, what authority we do have as a believer and what we don't have as a believer, and that we can't simply go and take verses out of context in Scripture that apply to Jesus who is God, and apply them to ourselves and say, well, the same authority that Jesus has, I have. And we also need to take note of who the audience is 
that Jesus is speaking to when he is in his earthly ministry and and right before he ascends to the right hand of the Father after he's been resurrected. It's very important that we take note of that because those are not prescribed to everybody. He is speaking to a specific audience at certain times when he gives instructions. On page 20, Kenneth Hagin says, quote, The trouble with us is that we've preached a cross religion, and we need to preach a throne religion. By that I mean that people have thought they were supposed to remain at the cross. Some have received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, some backed up to the cross, and some have stayed there ever since. We've sung near the cross, near the cross. Yes, we need to come by the cross for salvation, but we don't need to remain there. Let's go on to Pentecost, the ascension and the throne. He says the cross is actually a place of defeat, whereas the resurrection is a place of triumph. When you preach the cross, you're preaching death and you leave people in death. We died all right, but we're raised with Christ. We're seated with him positionally. That's where we are right now. We're seated with Christ in the place of authority in heavenly places. And he does talk about how many Christians don't know anything about the authority of the believer, and they really don't believe that we have any authority. But we do have authority. We just have to remember what that looks like as a believer in the proper context. And um, I would just remind, <laughs> I want to remind you and remind myself that that Paul said that he preached nothing or knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. So the Apostle Paul would disagree with Kenneth Hagin about preaching the cross is defeat. Uh, we need that. That's how we come to saving faith in Christ is what, what Jesus did on the cross. And to diminish that and to say, well, we just need to move on. We need to move on. It's almost treating the the gospel as if it's elementary and it's just something that you that you graduate from and that you move on from and and you just need to get past it. There, there's almost on a daily basis, I can just tell you now, having come out of this movement, there are moments that I sit and think about what the Lord did for me in his grace and his mercy. And I can't get over that. I, I will never get over what the, what Jesus has done for me because I don't deserve it. That to me is, is a very troubling thing to hear someone say, uh, in their writing or even in a message, oh, we just need to move past the cross. It's a place of defeat. Anyone who would say something like that obviously does not put a lot of significance on the gospel, on the cross, because the cross is central to our faith as far as what Jesus did on the cross. And and to diminish that, it, it's rather troubling. Um, as we go on in the believer's authority in this newer edition written in the 80s, uh, he changed Chapter 4's title from Rebel Holders of Authority, which was the same as Macmillan's, to Breaking the Power of the Devil. But he still does talk about um, Adam here and about the rebels of authority. When you hear the Word of Faith teaching, one of the things they talk about, Adam uh, committed high treason. So I'm going to take you through a little a little pathway, if you will, through my Bible college notes. And again, I use that in air quotes. But just to kind of give you, in case you're not familiar with this type of teaching, where this authority of the believer comes from, because it all goes back to the garden and their view of what happened in the garden. They add to it uh, because they believe that Adam was the God of this world, the little G, and that Adam committed high treason. This is straight out of his book um, in chapter four, and this is on page 25 of Kenneth Hagin's book that he says this, he, Adam committed high treason. He was the, the God of this world. He sold out to Satan and Satan through Adam became the God of this world. Adam didn't have the moral right to commit treason, but he had the legal right to do so. 
So there's that legal right. And in case you're familiar with that term, that's also what they use in deliverance ministry, that Satan has a legal right to believers, to born again believers. Ay, ay, ay. Okay. On page 27, Hagen says, does the church in this century have less authority than it did right after Jesus's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and seating at the Father's right hand? If it has less authority today, it would have been better for Jesus not to have died. Yeah, I'm taking a short pause there because that I, I, I remember reading that when I read through this book and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. You have got after after having it as a textbook. But at that point, there was such deception in the things that again, the things I wrote that were horrible. And they really grieved me when I came across them recently, uh, revisiting my notes on this for this episode. But to say that, if if the church has less authority today, it would have been better for Jesus to not have died. And he goes on and says, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Remember that. Who said that? And who is he talking? And who's Jesus talking about? Hagen says, all the authority that can be exercised upon the earth has to be exercised through the church because Christ is not here in person in his physical body. Because another belief in the word of faith is that God's hands are tied. He cannot legally enter the world and that's why he needed human beings. He has to work through a human being. Otherwise, he can't do anything. Is that biblical? Is that what scripture really teaches? Or is that teaching a God of our own imagination? I'll let you ponder on that. Hagen goes on and says, we are the body of Christ, even though we have prayed. Now, Lord, you do this and that, leaving everything up to him. He has conferred his authority on the earth to his body, the church. Thus, many problems exist because we permit them to. We're not doing anything about them. We're the ones who are supposed to do something about them, but we're trying to get someone else, including God, to do something about them. And I would even go so far as to say that there is even um, elements of open theism in word of faith teaching, because it's essentially the belief of, well, you know, God has created a plan B. He's basically taken like a backseat approach and he can't do anything without um, without using us to intervene. He has given us the earth. And so since we have authority over it, he has to rely on us. That is not the God of the Bible. Um, He says, I have found that the most effective way to pray can be when you demand your rights. That's what I pray. I demand my rights. He says that on page 29. And as we go on here, I'm trying to see, again, there are accounts that he added more detail to than were even mentioned in the first edition. Page 34, I have it right in front of me. He says, all the authority that was given to Christ belongs to us through him, and we may exercise it. We help him by carrying out his work upon the earth. And one aspect of his work that the word of God tells us to do is to conquer the devil. In fact, Christ can't do his work on the earth without us. Hmm, that's interesting. He says, go on. He goes on to say, likewise, Christ can't get along without us because the work of Christ and God is carried out through the body of Christ. His work never will be done apart from us, and we can never get along without him. And he does, he mentions about Ephesians. Ephesians is mentioned a lot in this book, especially when we get to Ephesians 6 about the spiritual warfare. He talks about dealing with a devil and that Jesus, it was a yakety yak demon. I remember learning about this too, that um, that Jesus couldn't do anything about it and he wanted to. And um, he goes on in, on page 38 of that and says, I've, Jesus told Kenneth Hagin, he, he alleges, I've done all I'm going to do about the devil until the angel comes down from heaven, takes the chain and binds him and puts him into the bottomless pit. He states that Jesus gave him four references to prove this because he said Kenneth Hagin makes the 
claim that he told Jesus, well, you're going to have to show me in scripture where this is. And he alleges Jesus showed him this, that he used Mark 16, 15 through 18, which is one of the scriptures we'll touch on. There's just things that he he makes reference to in this book that um, are ra- rather denigrating to Christ. He talks about free will in here and uh, on page 63. He says, as long as people don't want to be free, neither Jesus nor anybody else can set them free. He says, you can't go around indiscriminately exercising authority over the devil and somebody else. Uh, You've got authority over your own life and your own family, but you can't cast the devil out of everyone you meet on the street, even if they do have the devil in them because they have authority over their own lives. When people want help, that's another matter. So, yeah, there's there's several things that he says in this book that are troubling. I know I use that word a lot, but it's just troubling. I, I, I don't know how else to say it except just very troubling and unbiblical to diminish God in such a way to make it seem like God is just dependent on us and that he needs us when we need him. And and we forget that. And so I believe that we have adopted this very prideful, when we believe these types of teachings, we've adopted a very prideful and arrogant way of viewing things. And I, and I say that just from someone who was in the movement and, and can attest to that. And looking back, I didn't think I was prideful and arrogant, but I really was. I was very arrogant and prideful um, in my belief. And I thought it was faith. You know, I thought I was being confident, but it was pride and it was it was arrogance. Um, and I was really trusting more in myself than I was in God. I was trusting in my faith because faith is a force in, in this in this word of faith teaching, right? Now, before I get to my notes from the course that I took years ago, I want to share some thoughts with you off Kenneth Copeland's website so you can again see that this is in the word of faith teaching. I think that's pretty clear, but I just wanted to share this. There is an article that was posted on June 7th of 2022. It's called Seven Facts About Your Authority as a Believer. And in this article, Kenneth Copeland makes claims that uh, it was very upsetting to, to read this because, again, it's just a diminishment of Christ, in my opinion. But he says in this article, talking about that as new creations, that we um, are put in a position of power and authority, a position delegated to us by God through Jesus Christ. And along with that authority, um, Copeland says some certain responsibilities, and he wants to examine God's word concerning this. And so he's going to provide the seven points that we'll briefly touch on. One in particular, I'll look at a little bit. He alludes to Colossians 1.13 in here about how we were delivered from the power of darkness and that the word power is literally translated authority, according to him. And as he goes on to talk about this, he says, the word says that righteousness has come upon all men. And he quotes Romans 5.18. So let's look at Romans 5.18 and see if it says that or if he's just quoting part of it. it says, therefore, which I would encourage you again to go look at the, what is preceding the therefore, because it apparently applies to all this in order for you to have a complete thought. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Seems like it's it's a partial quotation, and it's showing the difference between the death and Adam in this in this ver- in these passages here, beginning in verse twelve, versus the life in Christ, and talking about sin entering through Adam, but life enters through Jesus Christ. Now, that's not for all people; that's for those that put their faith in Christ, because people that don't know Christ that are unbelievers don't have a righteousness of their own. Their righteousness is as filthy rags. It's unrighteousness. We are in need of the righteousness of Christ in order for us to stand before God. He uses this legal term, Paul does in this verse, 
um, that leads to justification, which is a legal term that means we're in right standing before God, that we are imputed Christ's righteousness to be able even to stand before the Father, and that our record has been wiped clean because of Christ. The penalty that was due for us for our sin which was the wrath of God and judgment, has been finished because of Christ. Christ took our punishment. He took our penalty. And he has washed us clean in his righteousness. So that right there, that was one thing of reading this article when he says the word says that righteousness has come upon all men. Well, why is that problematic? Well, let me keep reading what Kenneth Copeland said. He says, you may ask, then why don't all become righteous? Because in order to receive it, you have to act on righteousness from the point of authority. And then he says, on November 2nd, 1962, I used my authority as a human being and made a choice. I made the decision to receive Jesus as Lord of my life. And at that moment, the righteousness that had been upon me came inside me. I was made the righteousness of God in Christ. Really? Really? You took the authority you had as a human being and you made a choice? So who's God here? That would make an unbeliever having authority as a human being. And that makes you God in your own sight. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, you're basically putting yourself as God in your own sight. Well, I use my authority as a human being, even though I was unsaved and unregenerate, and I was at enmity with God before you are a believer in Christ. Scripture tells us we are sons of disobedience. We are enmity with God. We are under the wrath of God. We stand condemned already if we don't believe in Christ. That's the, the language in Scripture that's used. But instead, Kenneth Copeland is saying he used his authority as a human being, an unregenerate human being, because he had righteousness on him, because he takes part of Romans 5.18 and says that's for all people, when the, the audience that Paul was talking to were believers, not unbelievers. He was talking to Christians in Rome. So again, that's why it's so important to make sure that you understand the context of what you're saying. And please listen to Bible teachers that will expound on this and give you far more understanding than, than I could on this episode. I encourage you, please listen to Bible teachers, sound men that are Bible teachers that are going to lead you in the correct way through Scripture. Make sure that you're in a good Bible, make sure you're in a biblically sound church where the pastor is teaching you and ministering the word of God and that he's glorifying Christ and pointing you the way to the good shepherd ultimately. And he's pointing you to the path of righteousness and to the true understanding of scripture. That's so vital for us as believers. So real quickly, Kenneth Copeland tells the, the seven the seven facts about your authority as a believer. Number one is Jesus secured our power and authority. He talks about Mark 16, 15 through 18. Again, I'll touch on that in just a few minutes. Number two, we have authority to preach the gospel. We do. I agree with that. We have the authority to preach the gospel. Number three, we have authority to stand against Satan. And he is going to reference James 4, 7 in here. He says, you resist the devil and he will flee from you. The armor and the weapons are at your disposal. Well, he forgets to, to quote the very beginning of James 4, 7, submit to God. We are under authority. There's no way to get around that. As believers, we are under authority and the ultimate authority is God. He is the one that's in control and he is the ultimate authority with all the power. <laughs> It's just, it's amazing when you, when you, what you start seeing, when you pay attention and when you get in the word of God and you realize, well, this is not even a full statement of, of what some of these verses are. They're just partial statements and then they lift you up. That's the thing too. And I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. It just seemed like when I was going through this stuff and my old notes and the course I took, it was like, 
who's being exalted here? Like, who is the focus here? Oh, yeah, it's me. Yeah, I have all this power. I have all this authority. I have all this that I'm going to do. The devil's afraid of me. But by the way, the devil's not afraid of you. I don't care what Havilla Cunningham or anybody else tells you. The devil is not afraid of you. He's not afraid of you. He fears God, rightly so. And he knows what the eternal punishment that, that awaits him. Number four, we are seated with him in high authority. Kenneth Copeland says number five is we have the power of God's word to exercise our authority. And he's going to, he mentions different verses, such as in Mark 4, 35 through 40. And this is when they were on the sea. And there's some people that actually believe that we have uh, authority over the elements. And I used to believe that same thing. Um, I remember several years ago, standing on a beach and and rebuking a hurricane when we were on uh, vacation in Florida. And guess what? The hurricane came anyway. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. To, to have these types of thoughts. See who is actually the one that calms the wind and the waves. Ah, spoiler alert, it's not us. Um, he goes on number six, we have the authority to act as new creations. And number seven, we can minister and walk from a point of authority. So yeah, it, it he focuses on his authority there and, and he's it's taking verses out of context, which again, it's really sad. And unfortunately, there's going to be people that there are people that still believe this. I mean, there's many people that believe this, and they believe you can decree and declare, which is not praying, and that you can command and demand and and get anything you want because there's power in your words. And this teaching is again, it's it's here, it's it's all over the place, and people that that we've already listened to already on this episode are talking this way and using this this jargon, this verbiage. Now, I want to share with you a little bit from the notes that I have from the Authority of the Believer when I took this course in 2007. And again, there were things that I had written down that were just really, um, it's, it was really sad to go back and look at it. But at the same time, I'm so thankful to be out from um, under that type of teaching and those belief systems because they're, they're not honoring God and they're not testifying of Scripture in the proper context. And it was interesting, too, looking at the many verses that were given to us to talk about our authority. They were pointing more to, to the authority of God, the authority of Christ in that aspect, in the proper context. So let me give you this this little path to go on. You can maybe get it in your mind or just write it down so you can have an idea in case you haven't heard this type of teaching before and you're new to it about the authority of the believer, what this looks like in the Word of Faith teaching. Well, first of all, God made man. And then you could draw an arrow and you could even put, he created a triune being, because that's one of the things in Word of Faith too, is that they focus on the triune being, that your body, soul, and spirit. And they'll refer to 1 Thessalonians 5.23 for that. And though that does mention three right there, that's not consistent through scripture. For example, um, there are people that acknowledge that soul and spirit, that word is used interchangeably. So there's some that hold to the, uh, this is not a salvation issue um, in in this belief, but some people believe we're a triune being versus a a bipart being. So uh, a physical body and soul and spirit are interchangeable. But God made man and then the next, and he drew an arrow to a triune being. And then the next arrow is man had dominion. So the the teaching word of faith is, is that we have authority. We have authority because God gave authority to Adam in the very beginning. He gave him dominion. He made him a little God on this world, uh, as Kenneth Hagin said in his book. Then man gave away the dominion. The next arrow goes, a man gave away the dominion to Satan. 
And then because of that, what resulted was the next arrow, man lost his authority to Satan. So that's the whole battle here. Yeah, salvation, I mean, that, that's, that's important in the word of faith, but also too, and they do talk about salvation, and they talk about Calvary, but also the bigger thing is, is that you got back your dominion and authority that Adam gave away because he lost it to, to Satan. And so the last one is, is that the authority is restored through Jesus. So it's not just about your salvation. You need your dominion back. You can even see this teaching in uh, New Apostolic Reformation, because the whole belief is uh, that that you need to walk in power and authority, the dominion theology, that you need to, to walk in that power and authority in order to conquer the seven mountains, in order to have the Great Commission. You must have apostles with governing authority. You've got to have this power and authority that's exerted. So that's why I make the argument a lot of times that word of faith is, is ingrained into New Apostolic Reformation. This is a multi-headed beast is what this is. When you talk about the NAR, it's a multi-headed beast. It has many different facets to it, and it's multi-headed because it has some elements of prosperity gospel in it. You know, the wealth transfer, the great wealth transfer that many of us have heard for years prophesied. You, you have um, word of faith teaching in there. You have the latter rain. You have the manifest sons of God. That's part of the latter rain. You have um, uh, signs and wonders, healings. You've got the deliverance ministry. It's incorporated in there. You've got the fivefold with the modern day governing apostles and prophets in there. You have got so it's that's why it's a multi-headed beast. (laughs) It's it's just there's just so much to it that it can seem very overwhelming so that's where it is. Uh, Jesus came, That's and that's what I, my little diagram ended with, is that um, we have um, authority restored to us through Jesus, not only salvation, but also dominion. And a lot of times they'll use the passage in Psalm 8, verses 1 through 9. I had that in my notes, so I'm just, I'm just sharing some of the things that were in my notes in the course for the authority of the believer with the textbook of the Believer's Authority by Kenneth Hagin that was plagiarized <laughs> in its original uh, edition um, from John A. McMillan's pamphlet, The Authority of the Believer, and the title was changed in 1984 to The Believer's Authority. Dominion uh, position of the believer is what's used for Psalm 8, verses 1 through 9. I, I struggle. I mean, feel free to look at it on your own time. I, I struggle to see now where that's even clear that we have all this dominion. They also focus on Matthew 28, 18 in this movement, um, in this teaching that Jesus has all the power. And so that means we have all the power. And Matthew 28, 18, just to refresh your memory, that's the Great Commission. Well, when Jesus says he has all power and authority, he then sends those who are under his authority, his disciples, his apostles who have walked with him in his earthly ministry, who are going to lay the foundation for the early church and for the church to be built upon, he tells them, now go and make disciples of all nations. And that's what we're told to do. We're, we are instructed as believers that we are to minister the gospel. And in doing so, we're making disciples of nations, of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that's not a, um, a dominion type thing. We are to minister the gospel. People will take that verse where he says, all power and authority has been given to me, and they will make the deduction well, then he's given us all authority. But that's not what the verse says. It says he has been given all authority and power. And the other verses that are cited as well as Luke ten nineteen, 
uh, Matthew 10, 1, that power over demons and sickness is given to us, as well as the keys to the kingdom are given to us, according to Matthew 16, 19. Again, I'm just sharing the verses. I don't believe this any longer. I'm sharing the verses with you that people will use to say, this is this is um, based in scripture. And so these are the verses that back this up. They'll also teach in the word of faith that the believer has keys to hell and death, and they'll use Revelation 1.18. So I want to just look at that one real quick. Any of the verses I'm mentioning, please look them up on your own time and just look at the context of them. I mean, that's all you have to, that's one of the things I focus on um, when I'm talking about this, just look at the context. I mean, that's a simple thing you can do. There's several things you can do in this, but you need to look at the verses before and even after. That'll help you sometimes. But even just reading this simple verse in Revelation 118 that's used to say, well, the believer has the keys to hell and death. Let's just read verse <laughs> uh, verse 18. We'll back up to um, verse 17, actually, to get the full thought here. Verse 17 in Revelation 1, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is John speaking. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Does that say that uh, that believers have the keys to death and, and Hades or hell and death? Or does that say that Jesus has the keys to hell and death? It says Jesus has the keys to hell and death. <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, and then just other things too. I was taught that every time a person is born again, Jesus is resurrected again. I, I know I saw that st- it was written in my own handwriting in my notes. And I thought, what incarnation in the what in the world did did I write here? This is this is silly. Every time a person is born again, Jesus is resurrected again. And then I wrote down this horrible statement Um, that I've talked about before, but I said, Jesus, the man, and this is what I was taught in this class. So I'm writing down what the instructor told us. Jesus, the man went to hell, not God. The second Adam had to face the devil. If God had, that would not have been fair. Now, Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland both have taught that. And I've covered that before on another episode, but that makes me sick to see that. And I saw it in my own handwriting. That is denying that Jesus remained God and that he stopped being God. And if that was the case, then he was never God to begin with. That cannot happen. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is truly God and truly man. Yes, he came in in the earth as a human, but he was also God at the same time. And this is denying that. This is denying that hypostatic union and denying that he contain, he continued to be God. And it diminishes Jesus in this way that it puts Jesus on our level. So that way, everything Jesus did, we can do, right? Because John 14, 12 says that we will do greater works. Jesus said we will do greater works. Have you raised, a, a, a sister in Christ and I were talking about this today. Have you raised someone from the dead that was dead for four days? Have you walked on water? Have you, have you spoken to the wind and the waves and they've immediately responded? Have you immediately healed blind eyes? Have you immediately healed deaf ears? Have you immediately seen limbs grow out and you, and you have verifiable proof of this? Have you done any of these things? Have you told someone to come out on the water and walk on water and they've done it? No. None of us can claim that. That is not what that is even saying in John fourteen twelve. We can't do things greater than Jesus can. Have you raised yourself from the dead? Because scripture talks about not only that God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus raised himself from the dead and the spirit 
it, it mentions the Trinity in there at different times in the New Testament, raising Christ from the dead. The Spirit of Christ raised from the dead. God the Father raised from the dead. Jesus raised from the dead. It's all in there. So this diminishment of Jesus, it's, it seems kind of subtle, but then when you come step out of this movement and you see it, you're like, yeah, it's not real subtle. That's actually really gross. And it's, and it's heretical. So to say such things like that, it's, you're going, but you're bringing Jesus down to our level. That's not okay. Jesus is God, and he never stopped being God. Not for one iota, not for one second did he stop being God. Not ever. Not ever. <laughs> and as we go on, the in the notes I had, the confessions of faith, they talked about the keys to the kingdom, and the keys that they mentioned are his word, his name, and his blood. I was, you know, we were taught you, you plead the blood of Jesus, and you say the name of Jesus, and you want to speak his word. You want to, um, that there's power in your words, and so you want to speak his word out because there's power in it. Well, yes, there is power in his word, but it really, again, it puts a focus on you because you saying it is what gives it the power. That's wrong. There's power in his word, and his word is meant to declare who God is and to proclaim his gospel so that people come to saving faith in him and to testify of his majesty and his splendor and his wonder and his holiness and his um, power and his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence and everything about God, every divine attribute he has. The word of God testifies of him. It's not about us. Yes, the gospel is for us, and it's good news for us. But when we look at Scripture, Scripture is focused on Christ. Scripture is focused on God. The Holy Spirit is testifying of Christ. And any spirit that wants to say it's a Holy, the Holy Spirit that's not pointing back to Christ is not the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus himself said that the Spirit of God would testify of him. Anyway, the authority of the believer in these notes, um, we are told that uh, in this teaching that we have authority over devils, according to Luke ten nineteen. that we have authority over sickness, according to Matthew 10, 1. We have um, a, an, uh, and disease as well. We have authority over the flesh, according to Romans 6, verses 6 and 12. We have control over elements of nature, uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 39, and over poverty, according to Deuteronomy eight eighteen. And um, in this teaching as well, um, I was told that the new covenant gives us legal rights to things. <laughs> it gives us legal rights to things. The new covenant does. So again, that legal rights. And then spiritual warfare was another part of this in, in Hagen's book and in this teaching that I had. Um, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 was focused on, you know, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds and that we cast down every thought and imagination that would exalt itself against Christ to bring it into the obedience of Christ. So you have authority over your mind and that you bind the devil and you cast out the devil and you, you tread on the devil. And then they talk about Mark eleven twenty two through 24 about how you can have what you say. That's word of faith. <laughs> that is word of faith. Because Mark 11 is talking about speaking to that mountain. What did Vlad Savchuk just talk about? Whether Vlad knows it or not, he's got word of faith going on in his teaching right there. Some of these, the, even the deliverance ministers that don't like the word of faith teaching, they've got word of faith in there. They're, they're just in denial or they don't know. They don't recognize that they've got word of faith going on in their ministry. And they're not, they're, maybe they're just not educated in it or maybe they just, they know and they're just in denial. I don't know. Maybe they're in denial. Who knows? But they've got word of faith in there. 
I was taught that this is our heritage, that we are created in his image. Um, we have the redemption of man, that Jesus' power and authority is given to us. His name, his blood, his word is part of our heritage. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is our heritage. A home in heaven is our heritage. And then the last session, uh, I wanted to share this little bit with you, and then I'm going to cover a couple of verses. The things I share on this episode are a lot of times for people that have come out of this movement or they have family members or friends in this movement and they're trying to have some better understanding of what's going on in this movement and what the teachings are. And my goal is to just to try to help to, to offer some insight into this as someone who was in it and to point back to the truth of scripture, point back to Christ, point back to the gospel. We've got to get back to the gospel. The cross is not a place of defeat. The cross is victory because of what Christ did for us. That's good news. This whole thing of we we want to exalt ourselves, and a lot of times we don't even realize it. And there may be sincerity, but it's extremely misguided, extremely, especially that young man I played at the beginning. He's got a lot of zeal, but it sounds like not a lot of knowledge in what the scripture says as far as just listening to that one soundbite. You know, when you're saying all these things, it makes me wonder, do you even know what Scripture actually says? Or what kind of church do you go to? What kind of teaching are you sitting under? Do you understand what Scripture says, that there's really power in the Word of God, but not what what this is? This is Word of Faith, Word of Faith teaching. This last session, it was the authority of the believer again, and um, they touched on some things such as, your faith is your answer. Uh, we were recommended to read The Backside of Calvary by Rod Parsley. Um, I have little things jotted in my notes here um, in, in this course that I'm just reading to you. But the focus in this last session on the authority of the believer was power and authority. And they touched on John 14, 12 through 14, as I've mentioned already, and that your authority became yours when you were born again. Authority is not something you have earned or deserved. Authority is part of the foundation upon which our faith rests, and authority is the channel through which power operates. And they referenced in the notes Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. So I want to look at that real quick. Again, I'm just reading this verse because that's just a simple thing you can do and even reading before and after it. But in this case, you can read the verse. So Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. Let's see if this has to do with the channel through of which um, our power operates based on our authority. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Hmm. Okay, maybe I missed something in there, but I'm just seeing the, the power and authority of God. Um, and even that's that's not even finishing the thought. When you go on to verse 20, it says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It, it, it's, it's almost like Paul is reminding uh, the believers there, you have this inheritance because of Christ and your inheritance is eternal life. It's eternal life. And it's in a now and not yet. Now you do have it, but you don't see it yet. But I just want to remind you, it seems like he's saying that you have that. And it's an encouraging word to these and and offering thanksgiving because of what Christ has done, because of what God has done and, and encouraging the believers there in Ephesus that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. 
and having the eyes of their hearts enlightened to know what is the hope to which he has called you. The glorious inheritance, that's eternal life. Ugh, okay, yeah. So as they go on in these notes, authority over the devil and um, referencing at the resurrection of Jesus, Satan was completely humiliated. Well, yeah, and they reference Colossians 2.15 and that, yeah, Jesus was, he conquered, he defeated the devil. The devil is a defeated foe. So he's not afraid of you because he's already been conquered. And again, we still live in a world that's fallen. We live in a world where sin abounds. We live in a world where there's wickedness and evil and rebellion going on against God. We live in a world where we are seeing the spirit of the age in operation. Most assuredly, we are. We are seeing um, depravity abound in people. We are seeing people with reprobate minds. We are seeing all of this, the suppression of the truth that Romans 1 talks about, that people are making themselves their own gods. They're creating their own religion and making themselves their own gods and their own likeness. I mean, this is all talked about in Scripture. It's not a surprise. But yet, we live in a world that is still fallen, but yet we as believers still have hope because we have been delivered and saved from the penalty of sin, and he has given us his spirit as a down payment or guarantee of our inheritance, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our sanctification, and that we now understand as believers we have been delivered and saved from the power of sin, (laughs) and that we can, I mean, we have such hope, but then there's all this other stuff, these hoops to jump through, and all these other teachings, it just, it just seems like the gospel is not sufficient when it is. They talk about the authority of the church in here and the, and the order of the authority God has placed the church directly under Jesus and directly over the devil, citing Mark 16, 17 through 18 and Matthew 28, 18. Um, and I was told that when you speak his word, you make manifest his authority. And it is now our responsibility to take authority through his name, through his word and through the power of his spirit. And that when you understand authority, the operation of faith becomes simple and that we are to use our faith. This just kind of gives you an idea. If you've not been familiar with it or you're going, yeah, all that sounds familiar to me, then you understand what where this teaching came from. It, it's, it started with John A. McMillan. It may have started even before then, but Kenneth Hagin was not the originator of it. I just want to take, tell you that first and foremost. He was not the originator of it. He plagiarized a book off John A. McMillan that was written in 1932, and he passed it off as his own. He used the same title, and then when he got called out on it years later, they revamped the, the book, the, the newest edition, which is the one I was given when I had this class, and they passed it off as some sort of 50th anniversary of Hagen's ministry, that they re-edited this, edited the book in 1984 and added the information he always wanted to include. They made it sound like that they just decided to do that to honor Kenneth Hagen. They did not acknowledge the fact that they got called out. Hagen got called out for plagiarism and not acknowledging, and then the things he said about it. And then on top of that, the things that are written in there that he added to. There were things he said that Macmillan didn't say in his book when he's talking about the things I've shared with you in the class I was taught. So I wanted to share those things with you. Now, there's one, I'll I'll look at one passage of scripture, um, because I've touched on a few of them, but there was one that is highly quoted quite often, and I have ladies that, that message me from time to time, and they're asking about this particular passage. And this was one I had drilled into me for years. Uh, Mark 16, 15 through 18 was one that we heard very often. 
And it's always the one of the go-to of many, the go-to passages that are used to say, oh, look, we have all this authority. This is the, this is the Great Commission. I just want to read this to you and offer some thoughts to you as I've read it just personally. Mark 16, 15 through 18 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, verse 19, and sat down at the right hand of God, verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now, that's another important part to read verses 19 and 20, but I also believe it's it's important when you're reading this to back up to verse 14, because there is quite a bit of focus from people. They'll say, see, this is in Mark 16, 15 through 18. This is our commission. We are to do this and we are to proclaim this. And we are also that we are told that those who believe, which they'll say that means us you and I today, that we are to cast out devils, we are to speak in new tongues, we are to lay hands on the sick, we are to take up serpents, which, uh, when was the last time you saw any of these people take up an actual snake? And I'm not talking about something they've claimed spiritually they've ripped out of somebody's back in the spirit. I'm talking like physically taking up snakes. When was the last time you saw that? Other than uh, in my area, in where I live, that there are some in in areas in the country where I live in the eastern part of the country that there are churches that take up venomous snakes and and do foolish things with that. But I, I want you to just think about that. Uh, when had when was the last time you saw any of them take up a deadly poison and drink it? Now some of them will take these verses and they'll say, well, the first part of it's literal, but the other part of it's just metaphorical. Well, that's not how that works. <laughs> so you're going to have to be consistent. But I want you to back up to verse 14. It says, Afterward he appeared, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. So who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the 11. And we're just looking simply at what Jesus is saying. This is the only passage I'm going to look at today, but I encourage you to look at the other ones that have been mentioned and other ones if, if they come to mind, when, if you've been under this teaching, and please study them. Please, please, please study them. Study the Word of God. Love being in the Word because you're fellowshipping with God when you do that, and you're learning more about God when you do that. And you're, and you're glorifying him and understanding his word properly so that you can follow him properly. But who's he rebuking here? He's rebuking his 11 disciples because they had unbelief and they had hardness of heart. They had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. They denied the resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection at this point. They did not believe it. So that gives us context because then if, the context is important because of what he goes on to say. Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Now, we know in verse 20, it says they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. It's talking about the disciples there, the 11 disciples that he spoke to in my name. 
They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. Well, that happened on the day of Pentecost. That was the supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit coming and that he gave the apostles the ability to speak in known languages that were unknown to them. And it glorified God. It testified of God. The gospel was preached that day and 3,000 souls came to saving faith in Christ. That happened. They spoke in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poisons, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. One last thing, and I know some people get upset when you say this, but listen, it's in your Bibles, okay? There are some issues with the passages, verses 9 through 20 in Mark 16. And the issue is, you'll see this in in some of your translations, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses, and the reason for that is some of the, the the early manuscripts do not contain it. And so there is a question as to whether or not this is in the original passage. Some don't know if Mark actually wrote it or if it was added on. Regardless of that, it does not change the gospel. It does not change the gospel because the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 is a very concise passage that tells us what the gospel is. Paul made that very clear what the gospel is. And he never said in there, in order for you to know what the full God, the true gospel is, you must also have signs and wonders and cast out demons. Your salvation is based on what Christ did. Nothing you could do. And it's based on him dying on a cross for our sins in accordance with scripture, him being buried, and in three days rising from the dead in accordance with scripture. All of this was predicted in the Old Testament. That's an example I've been asked about by ladies as as they've messaged me. And so I wanted to talk about that one. And also because it's mentioned quite often in this teaching about the authority of the believer. Now, I just want to close with this and, and encourage you as a believer, if you're going, well, I don't even know what is my authority in Christ? What what can I do? If I, if I can't do all these other things, then what authority do I have? Well, one thing I would remind you of is that you are under authority. I am under authority. Jesus is the supreme authority. And it's not about us and how powerful we are. It's about the power that he has. He says that all he said in his word in Matthew 28, that all power and authority had been given to him. So those under his authority were to were delegated to do what he commanded to do, which was minister the gospel. In his earthly ministry, he sent out the 70 and it authentic and it basically showed that he was the Messiah, that he indeed had power and authority. He had put those the people who were under his authority, the 70 out, and they came back and said, all the demons are subject to your name. But then he reminded them, you don't need to rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven. It's written in the Lamb's book of life. That is your focus. That is my focus. That is to be the focus of a born-again believer in Christ. Not all this power and authority that we have, but that we belong to the one who has power and authority and that he came and died on our behalf and he did what we did not deserve and that we could not do, but that we were in desperate need of. We were in desperate need of reconciliation back to the Father. And Jesus provided that for us by taking on the penalty of sin that belonged to us and cleansing us with his righteousness. We are to go and proclaim the gospel. That is one of the things that we have the authority to do. Um, we can proclaim the gospel. We share the gospel with others. And, and we also have the right to be called a child of God. 
John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We have given that, been given that right as believers. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence, according to Hebrews 4.16. And we must also remember that we are not to boast, but boast in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10.17 says that. There's a lot of boasting and a lot of arrogance that's found in this teaching of the authority of the believer. And it's a false humility. Because people will say, well, I, you know, I'm not exalting myself, but you really are. Because if you think you have all this power and authority and that Jesus just gave every, every bit of his power and authority to you, and then you use it the way you do and you wield it the way you do and you diminish what true prayer is and you diminish what true power and authority is and you diminish the cross, then you've just made yourself God. You have put yourself on such a exalted st- in, a, in such an ex- exalted state that you have thought more highly of yourself than you should. We do not boast in ourselves; we boast in the Lord. Just like with our salvation, Jonathan Edwards said, "You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary." That's pretty humbling when you think about it. That's a that's a whole other topic for another time. We are told and encouraged in Scripture based on the instructions that Paul gave to to others as we read the epistles that are to the churches. We can be encouraged when we read what Paul said to Titus, that he told Titus to to teach the scripture boldly with authority. And as believers, we serve each other and the Lord, and we serve each other with authority and and, and the confidence that comes with knowing that we are doing God's work. So these are just some of the ways um, that we can understand. The ultimate authority comes from God's word, and that's what we stand upon as believers. We have no authority in and of ourselves. The authority that we have comes from the word of God, and we are under authority. Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority. This is not a power trip that we're to go on. This Nothing like this, and we don't read things into the scripture that's not there. And, and basically say, well, it all belongs to me. And so Jesus, ergo, since Jesus got all the authority, it belongs to me. That's not what the passage says. So we've got to make sure that we're honoring God and that we're reading the text properly because we're dishonoring God when we don't do that. And we're not sharing it as what it, as what it states. We are the ambassadors of Christ. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.20 reminds us of this, that we can speak with his authority as we share his word, appealing to the world on behalf of Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are to, uh, to minister the ministry of reconciliation. And again, that's the gospel. That's not giving a a word of knowledge or um, calling it a word of knowledge or a prophetic word or anything like that. The prophetic word that you give is the gospel, the more sure word of prophecy. Testifying of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, the call of repent and believe, be saved, turn to Christ. That's where the power is. The power is in the gospel. Romans 1, 16, 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also the Greek. The power is in the gospel. It's sufficient. Huh. Okay. So I think I need to end there. <laughs> so I appreciate you spending time with me today on this topic. And I hope that this has been uh, helpful 
and um, insightful for those that may not know about where this teaching came from. But um, I appreciate being with you guys today. If you have any questions or uh, thoughts, please feel free to email me at dawn at lovesubscribe.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, or if it's been helpful, if you would consider leaving a five star review, so other people can find it, um, I would appreciate that. And also feel free to share it with others that may benefit from this. Until next time, when we cover uh, another topic and going back into scripture, I hope you have a blessed week and that you're blessed by the truth of God's word. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at Lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesixscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.